Um, thank you. It's so kind. And it is an honor to be here. I mean that. That you would take time out of your schedule and be here. Any, any of us who are presenting today would tell you that's, uh, that's val your time is valuable. I count that as very valuable to me also. And pray, have been praying for weeks that this would be transformative in how you approach this gen. Okay? Um, yeah, you don't decide to write this book overnight. <laughs> hey, I think I'll write a sex book for this generation. <laughs> and know that, you know, some of you know a little bit about, maybe a little bit about my story. My brother is uh, quite popular and uh, has chosen the gay lifestyle. And so, you know, to, I did, I ran it by him. I just said, listen, do you mind if I, because <laughs> uh, he thinks he runs the family, but he's my younger brother. And uh, so, you know, everything that is in here is not a surprise. It's not a surprise to our family. So, uh, you know, we may differ. My brother and I may differ on some things, but we have enough to agree on to be in relationship. Because I never want to win an argument and lose a friendship. Right? I'm about to say that again. Do not preach. This is a teaching session. Don't make me preach, okay? <laughs> I just got done preaching and I don't want to preach this morning, okay? So I just really believe in that, that I don't want to win arguments and lose friendships. And, and I, get the, I get the juxtaposition on that. Well, does that mean then that we, that we lose our truth? with sloppy agape and sloppy grace, right? Well, no, of course not. We just choose to drop that argument, build the relationship until I can go back and get that argument and that narrative again. Because I will come back to it again if it's truth, right? So, yeah, the, the, uh, I think you're all gifted this. So if you want multiple copies, I do have a box with me. So if you're wanting to... Um, get these for team or, uh, you know, teenagers, I do have uh, a box with me, and, and I can make those available if you would like. Um, when this topic came to our editors, uh, they actually were looking at several different authors for this book. Whitaker House is, um, so I, I've only been an author for about four years, and this is my fourth book, and so after my first two, uh, youth ministry and, uh, uh, was my one before this. And then I did a book. Uh, uh, some of you know my story. My wife passed away about five and a half years ago. So I did a book uh, with the title, Hashtag If Job Had Twitter. So what would Job say to millennials about suffering? And every chapter was a tweet. It is the only book in the history of publishing to have a hashtag as the title. <laughs> right, I don't know what that means anything. doesn't mean the book is good, right? But so you can only find it if you get that. You can't, you know, it, so anyway. It, so Whitaker House saw that like four years ago. And they were planning a book because they don't really have a youth arm. They were planning a book on sex and sexuality. So they had talked to several other authors that are doing that right now. Some incredible authors that came out uh, Christopher Wan, if you've, if, if you've seen his, there, there's just some great books on this topic. Uh, but nothing really specific toward Gen Z, okay? So they had seen my title, literally have never read a word other than my title that I wrote, <laughs> and called me up, and they're like, hey, we'd just like to interview you. And so, you know, we went through that process. And so I gave them, I gave them five titles for the book. The first one was The Devil Stole Product. I mean sex. The Devil Stole Sex. And uh, they thought that was, you know, a little edgy, so I just put it in as a chapter title. <laughs> and the second one was this one, and they just went all over it. And the idea behind it, just so you know, um, Jen Sexy, Sex Z, Sexy Z, Sex YZ, I don't care. Well, however many times you say it is good for the book, right? <laughs> so the idea, we were in the, you know, uh, in these planning stages. And what we're really trying to accomplish is to look at the sexual revolution from the Xer, which would be the parents in the room, the millennial, the Y, 
which would be the older brothers and sisters of the Z, right? So if you follow that through, we left the silence out um, uh, just, you know, for title's sake. I do, I do reference grandparents in there. One of the most significant, listen to this, this is really, this is really good. One of the most significant statistics that I came across with sex and sexuality in this uh, almost two-year write was that Gen Z at a 4% biblical worldview, so most of you have heard that, 4% biblical worldview. That means they think about the issues in society, okay, through a biblical framework or lens, okay. Gen Z, all of Gen Z, not church, not just church kids. Only 4% of this generation thinks from a biblical perspective. That's remarkable. I didn't even believe it, to be honest. And I called Barna when that came out. And I'm like, no, come on, this is a misprint. Give me 14%. Give me 24%. Give me something, right? And it was stunning when that came out. But let me just compare that. We can go through the generations and compare it. But it and it's in the book, so you can read that part of it. But... Their grandparents had about a 65% biblical worldview. So in three generations, 65-4. And the reason I share that is this. Most sociological studies right now that come out for Gen Z say this. That Gen Z, teenagers today, are closer to their grandparents than anyone in their family structure. Isn't that a remarkable thought? Now... I'm sure your minds are spinning, thinking, well, not really my kids. My kids love their parents, and their parents are deacons or their PKs or, you know, or whatever, and they have a great family. That might be your kids. I'm just giving you the stats. All Gen Z, all Gen Z, not church kids, are closer to their grandparents than they are to their older brothers and sisters and to their parents. And isn't that significant when you look at the study and the research that the thing that they are missing the most, they find in their grandparents. Theology. Right? You see the tie? The thing that Gen Z is missing the most, 4% biblical worldview, they see in grandma and grandpa who have a 65% biblical worldview. And their older brothers and sisters, the millennials, had a 19% biblical worldview. And their parents, Gen X, had a 32% biblical worldview. So each of those dropped in half all the way to 4%. Now you know why that statistic is so important. Because of this screenshot right here. The principles of one generation become the practices of the next. Um, Psalm 78. Let me launch from here. Psalm 78 is a iconic chapter in the kingdom. I won't take the time to read all of it, but as I would work through Psalm 78, you would be like, oh, yeah, I've heard that. That's all. Oh, I remember that. There's iconic phrases in Psalm 78. Let me just pick it up from uh, verse 1 and just kind of skip through it. Give ear, my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and we've known and our forefathers have told us. Okay, are you catching this? We are hearing things that were told to us from the last generation. On and on and on, this language, we will not hide them from our children, telling to the generations to come the praises of the Lord. And his strength, and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony into, on and on. The law, he commanded our fathers that they should make these known to their children and to the gen. So it's just like a repeat. This chapter is on repeat. And the chapter, you know, most, you, I'm sure you know that most of the book of Psalms was written by David. Uh, 18 or 20-ish were written by his writer, Asaph. Asaph wrote this, and all Asaph was doing was giving us a history of Israel. And all, all the way through Psalm 78, he places the responsibility, listen, he places the responsibility of the handoff of the faith from one generation to the next. From the grandparents 
to their parents, to their children, and their children, and every generation, right? So you, you, it, it kind of brings up the song, the blessing, right? I remember when I first heard that, I'm like, okay, all right. On and on and on, on and on and on, on and on and on. I get it, I get it. Then the Holy Spirit was like, no, 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 this is so biblical. You know, it's so biblical. Get used to it. <laughs> so when you look at Psalm 78, again, I don't want to read through the whole thing, but what is it that we are to pass off? Faith, law, principles, statutes, commandments. On and on and on. It's called theology. Then he gets into not just theology, but practice. And he starts talking about works and miracles and signs and wonders. So, you, know, you listen, it's not just theology, statutes, commandments, principles, precepts. It is now practice. Isn't that powerful? What a great thought. And so what I want to do in this session is to take you through this journey of biblical sexuality. Okay? I can do it with six stops from Genesis to Revelation. Okay? Six quick stops. There are many more. Uh, there, are mo there's a mul there are dozens of scriptures that we could go to. Okay, but I want to give you uh, these six stops right here. Let's begin with Moses in Genesis. I call this uh, the creation intent. The creation intent for gender, marriage, and sex. Okay, you'll see these three repeated, gender, marriage, and sex. Genesis 1 through 3 and Genesis 5. When you look at the way that the scriptures began, they began with, and God created them male and female, gender. Told male and female to leave and marry. It can't be any clearer, right? I know this is elementary, but so marriage, gender, marriage. Then he said, have passionate sex, fill the earth, and, and lead it, literally. Fill the earth and lead it, sex and sexuality. So you have, you, honestly, and I know this is just a cheap way to say it. I understand when I do this, but honestly, we could stop right there, drop the mic. I won't, but drop the mic and be done. Because anything that comes after the creation intent is simply, listen, is simply a prohibition, a man-made, culturally created prohibition outside of Scripture. Okay? So the creation intent gives us parameters, dy dynamic guidelines, and a framework. We don't have to visit and go off. I'm going to give you more. I'm going to. But we don't have to. There's enough information in 1, 2, and 3, and 5 of Genesis, to say, and your point is, but it's really great that God gives us more. So let me keep moving, all right? <laughs> uh, the wisdom literature or the wisdom intent. This one is remarkable to me too. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, you could throw that in there too, Song of Solomon. It is a remarkable read from the wisest man who ever lived. I mean, Plato, Aristotle, Paul, etc. Walk, walk all of the intellectual thought and philosophy up to today, the 21st century. And there's very little debate about the fact that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. Not because it was said of him within it, the, its own biblical text, but because extra-biblical thinking is really Salamic. It all goes back to him. You might even have an argument for Pauline thought. So what does, what does Solomon say about this? This is interesting, that 
the wisest man who ever lived never gave us a precept, a framework for sex, sexuality, or uh, gender, marriage, and sexuality. It never gave us a framework between a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, or a man and a boy, or right? There's no LG+. There's no, uh, what I mean by LGBTQIA+. Right now, uh, the, 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 that community is comfortable with LG+, now. That's some of the common language now. I have a lot of relationship with that community, and they've just shortened it even to LG+. Um, Interesting that the wisest man who ever lived did not give us a biblical framework for sex between man and man or any other expression like that. Don't you think that if the scriptures were really, really supportive of it, we wouldn't have to read into Jonathan and David's relationship. We wouldn't have to read into whether Paul was or not. Hello? Hello? Do I have to go and explain those? I think you might know where I'm going with some of that. We don't have to go there because the scriptures would have given us a framework for a healthy homosexual relationship. Don't you think? I mean, it, to me, I know it's not, I know it's an, an, argu, it's an argument of uh, what's not said. <laughs> I understand that. I've been in these debates but don't you think that if it were clear, we wouldn't have to make up other interpretations and readings within other contexts or scriptures that we are trying to debate, that it would be very clear. Solomon was very clear on the rest of gender, sex, and sexuality, and marriage, and right? Very clear. And so there's, there's no place for or definition of sex outside of marriage between a man and woman. Pretty clear. Let's move to the third stop. Uh, this Jesus on sexuality, um, the messianic intent. So we have the creation intent. We have the wisdom intent. And we have the messianic intent. And forgive me for skirting through these. We, I, could, I could spend a whole session on each of these and break out the words in the Hebrew from the first two set stops. And, and I could go right now to the words in, in the Greek here. But it's in the book. <laughs> so I, I break all those words down, give you the definitions for those words, even give you some of the arguments on the other side for these words, okay? So hopefully that will be more helpful than me bogging us down into a lot of that detail now to just give you the highlights, okay? Uh, Jesus. Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Jesus never said anything about incest. Jesus never said anything about bestiality. That's what you hear often, don't you? That's simply not true. Okay? I, I know when I say that, I'm going against even conservative writers. I, I, I know that. But let's just slow down and hear what I'm saying. Jesus had a lot to say about those issues. He just didn't say much. Because what he did say was very clear. Don't touch the stove. Y'all have kids? <laughs> Don't touch the stove. They get close. Don't touch the stove. They go to reach for it. You don't have to say it again once you've seen it in your culture. Once the Romans and the Greeks really destroyed gender, marriage, and sex, and Jesus came so strongly against it, he didn't have to say it that many times. Jesus didn't say, 
you know, a ton about a lot of things. Does that mean that because he didn't say a lot about something that it's not important? No, I think you have to look at what he did say. Over time, Jesus comes along after Moses and after Solomon. Okay, the earthly son of man comes along. <laughs> Hello. And he could have changed everything that he said. He could have, hello, evolved on the topic. But he didn't, did he? When Jesus spoke in Matthew 5, 15, and 19, and let's just throw in Romans 7 and 8. I'm sorry, John 7 and 8 also. When Jesus spoke on this topic, he was very clear. As a matter of fact, this is what he said. Do you remember what Moses said? I agree with him. So he shuts the conversation down pretty quickly by saying, you remember the law. Yeah, I know it's been a few years. And I know we live in this Roman and Greek culture. Listen, mythological culture that was very sexual. But I'm not changing my tune for culture. I'm supporting scripture, the law. And so he says, you remember what he said, that's good enough for me too. So Jesus goes all the way back. Listen, I know it's an, argue, it's an argument of simplification. But I, I, hang on. He goes all the way back, supports what Moses says. And then in this, in, in this society, in 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 the first century that he was walking in, uses the word porneia. There's, there's very little debate on the word porneia. There's debate on the word malakoi, which is, we could get it, it's in the book. There's debate on the word arsenikoite, arsenikoitas, tie. There's, there's some different uh, debate on that. But there is zero debate on both sides of the aisle, e even when you do hear the debate on the progressive side, it, it holds no water to people that understand Greek completely. There's no debate when Jesus chose the word porneia. I know you want to, in your mind, think, oh, yeah, pornography, it's not really, that's not really the same word. I think pornography leads to porneia, but it's not a root word. It's not right. But hear me. It is an overarching word that encompasses all forms of sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman, including other words we didn't even have at the time. So he and Paul and John and Jude <laughs> used this word to speak to everything that was going on in that day rather than just speaking down to one specific issue okay so when Jesus spoke on it he was very clear on what he was saying was sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman didn't say a lot but he 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 addressed it four times actually you could say five when I get to revelation I'll kind of bring that up too but remember the woman at the well in in John the woman at the well comes up here's this conversation right uh, or the woman caught in adultery, I'm, I'm sorry. Here's this conversation. And they leave, the rocks drop. And what does he say to her? Do you remember the words? Go and what? Identifying that, that her sex outside of marriage with a man was what? Sin. Confining again, right? Confining again, using the word porneia, sex within marriage between a man and a woman. Okay? Um, I'll come back to Jesus in Revelation when I get there, okay? Let's go. Uh, Paul and Romans, uh, and 1 Corinthians, and Galatians, and <laughs> uh, yeah, 1 Timothy. There's so much. Of, I, I don't believe anyone from my study spoke more about this than Paul. 
And if it were true, as some progressives say, I've, I've been at the table and I've sat with them. I've been on the podcast and I've sat with them. And, they, and, and they'll immediately jump to, you know, Jonathan David's relationship. And they'll immediately jump to, you know, that was Paul's thorn in the flesh and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking now, okay, let me give you that first. Let me just give you, it's a, it's a chasm to jump, but let me give you that. Let's say Saul was gay. Did you see where I went? Let's say Saul was gay. Because Saul didn't write the scriptures. Paul did. <laughs> Just a thought. Let's say Saul was gay. Something happened in his life that transformed him. So are you giving me therapy? You're giving me, a, you're giving me the change here? You're giving me another argument for the fact that someone can change? Because what Paul wrote on the topic proved decisively that he was not gay, nor did he approve of it, homosexuality. Paul's use of clarity, listen, Paul was the author of lists. Paul loved lists. <laughs> you ever follow his list? Fruit of the Spirit, fruit of the flesh. Uh, his list of cities that he went to and visited. The list of people that he had mentored and the people that were around him. The list of the beatings and right, all the things that he went through in, in uh, St. Corinthians. All of these lists, Paul loved clarity. Paul loved clarity. Partly because he studied under Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was known for that. If you read extra biblical literature, Gamaliel, his rabbi, his teacher, was highly respected. And as an author of lists, when you write down lists, you are confident that everything that I've placed in this list is there for a reason. Pauline thought had a reason. And multiple times, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 7, Galatians chapter 5, 1 Timothy 1, multiple times Paul made lists. And when he included all kinds of matters in those lists, he would say something like, those who practice these things cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. The word that he used for practice is the word pattern. Those who pattern their life after, uh, to, to, to just fill the list in, sexual immorality. Pornea. He used other words, but that was, he clumped those sexual sins into immorality, prohibitions, immoral. And th that list of sexual sins was placed within a list of Anger, gossip, hatred, dissension. Do we need to go on? So if Paul included all of that kind of stuff in a list of those who practice those things, he was being very clear that this is sin. Specifically, in his language, Galatians 5, 19 to 22. 18 to 22. Those who practice these things, the list that came before, cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. So it's, it, honestly, the more you read Paul, the more it's like clear. It's so clear. But most of us, listen, when we're having these conversations, don't know where to stop off biblically. We're not sure. Maybe the Genesis 1, you know, we're really clear with that. And maybe Romans 1, that's pretty pop. But do you understand that there are some people on the progressive side that Romans 1 was talking about idolatry, not homosexual practice. They were, they were idolaters, right? A, a thorough, re again, I address that in there, but a thorough read of that is, yes, <laughs> they were talking about idolatry and immorality. So, yeah, it's kind of like the argument, it's kind of the argument in Old Testament of Sodom and Gomorrah. Have you heard, 
you know, the argument that this is not, listen, Sodom and Gomorrah were not judged because of homosexual acts. They were judged because they didn't take care of the poor. And, you know, that was thrown on my face in this very popular podcast. I remember it. And, you know, a smile came to my face and the and, and, you know, the, the two that I'm debating are like, you know, we got them on this one. That's kind of the feel, right? And I'm like, you know, can I answer that, right? And I just said, yes, I agree with you. And they're like, oh, what do you mean? Oh, what? Hold it. You agree with progressive? Yes. And <laughs> it is never simply just one thing, right, when you look at a nation's sin. Look at America. Are we being judged for materialism? Yes. And <laughs> idolatry, disobedience, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it, it, it's just how are you going to argue this out? How are you going to defend arguments of um, simplicity? It was only this. So then we moved to Jude. And Jude, in his little book, I think is as powerful on this topic as any of the other people we're referencing, John, in a minute. When Jude references back to Sodom and Gomorrah, you can read it. It's just, is it four, five, six, seven, eight, something like that, right in the middle there. When Jude references any, and he uses the term sarx, sex, S-A-R-X, sarx, sex. All that, all that means is it's not angelic, it is flesh sex. And the argument here, I hope I'm not losing you, man, to go deeper in this. Again, I'm giving you these stops. And, but the, many of the arguments in progressive thought is that Sodom and Gomorrah were being judged because they, had, they, were, they were not taking care of the poor and they had sex with the, with the angels that had shown up. Again, yes and. Maybe they were trying. Maybe there was an angelic, uh, demonic being, okay, that had manifested itself. But there is also no, hear me, there is no confusion, zero confusion, that there were humans there also at the door. And in the city, hello, <laughs> who had been practicing sex with these men that showed up. So whether they were attracted in the moment toward angelic, demonic, sorry, fle flesh, uh, uh, you know, spirits manifested in the flesh, or in that moment there were others in the area that, that we just don't, didn't hear the story around the door that they had had sex with and maybe were going to again. It's both and because Jude uses the term sarks. They were destroyed because of sarks sex. Another chapter closure. <laughs> Let me go to the last one. Um, what time do we have? Is this flying by? 55. Oh, we're good. We're good. Um, John in Revelation. You see these texts, these chapters. Again, John addresses this, uh, this topic very clearly and thoroughly in the Revelation. And even quotes Jesus, okay, um, when a, a, a list, again, is given of those who are kept outside the gates. And judgment that comes upon sexual immorality and the whore. Okay, the whore of Babylon. A clear, clear biblical framework that Sexual immorality outside of a male and a female in marriage. Okay, that prohibition uh, keeps us outside of the gates of heaven. Again, I don't have time to read all those, but you'd have to go there and maybe just, make, you know, drop off and read those yourself. But when the whore is judged, all it says this, and all of her atrocities... All of her uh, behavior was being judged. It's, it, it honestly is so simple and clear. I, I think, you know, to me, 
The most difficult part is practice, not theology. So let me take the last few minutes of this session, and then we'll do some Q&A too, and talk about practice. Practice? Practice. We're talking about practice, right? <laughs> yeah, those of you, anyway, just a few of us there that, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you, uh, yeah, yeah, the older, the, older we, the older we are. Listen, listen, a holistic look at the Bible gives a clear scriptural stance on the sanctity of gender, the sanctity of marriage, and the sanctity of sex. Simple. That gender, marriage, and sex is holy. And that it is clearly scripturally based, not culturally based. Because we have this huge battle between culture and scripture. A huge battle between, let me, let me show you this. We have been looking at the counterfeit cultural sexuality for so long that we do not even recognize genuine scriptural sexuality. What happens is we are conditioned, we are conditioned culturally by music and movies and upbringing, 4% biblical worldview. That's called a 96% cultural worldview. I know it's not really what it means, but right. So if the faith handoff in Psalm 78 is not happening from generation to generation, then who's handing the faith off? I contend that it's pure theology, not pure theology. <laughs> and how many know pure theology doesn't work? Right? Pure theology looks like this, right? Two teenage girls are talking, and one of them says, I hate boys, I hate boys, I never want to see another boy again. Right? And her girlfriend is like holding her, stroking her hair, right? And says, What happened? TJ just left me and he's like cheating on me. I hate boys, right? And her girlfriend says, TJ left you. Oh, hello? <laughs> and she's like, oh, yeah, TJ, boys are terrible. Man, TJ's terrible. It'll be okay. And what happens? The girlfriend's dating TJ in a week. Because he's available or whatever, right? And then the other girl who got hurt by TJ is dating someone else in a week, right? That's peer theology. Because it's emotional, it's not ethic. It's feeling, not faith. It's popularity, not principle. See that? Emotion versus ethic. Feeling versus faith. Or popularity versus principle. And what has happened? We have shaped, listen, we have shaped our theology of everything on popularity, feeling, and emotion. Not principle, faith, or ethic. And so you get what we have in America today. Confusion. Worse, changing confusion. <laughs> because culture is shifting and the scriptures are not. It must be a bummer to place my ethic on culture. Have you ever thought about that? I'm speaking at uh, University of Minnesota in their sociological, their philosophy of sociology class. And, and this is all, there's very few, I mean, there's 60 in the room, and I'm going to say maybe this many believers, 
because at the end, you know, they come and talk to you because <laughs> they can tell. And I was introduced that way too. And I'm like, I just said this, you know, this, it must be a bummer to place your moral framework on culture, on law, on civil code, on et cetera, right? Waking up and saying, dude, that U2 album, <laughs> wow, that's my new ethic. Or, hello, uh, three's, three's, three's Company, or Happy Days, or it, all the way through t- time, right? There's, I do a little review on, on that, the first kiss and the first homosexual kiss and the first cuss word and all, right? It must be a bummer to build a framework on culture because you never know what it's going to be next month. Hello? So I try to get young people to just understand this. You know, if this is what your friend said, it's going to change when you're in high school. <laughs> I know this is what your middle school friend said, but when you get in high school, you're going to have another friend down the hall who says something else. And is that what you're going to believe then? At least where I'm coming from, and I get it, in a lot of these debates, this is not integris. This isn't whole. I understand that. They're not going to give me this. But I'm so okay with that because my response is always, at least I have something that's not changing. I know it's elementary. It's, it's philosophically, argumentatively elementary. But the same people who have a problem with this, hear me, do not have a problem with civil code such as breaking and entering or speeding. I mean, it makes sense that we should be able to go 70 on the highway, but only 25 at a school section. Hello? That makes sense. And I feel that weight upon me when I see that sign. But they make no worries about that. But when this puts a little cramp on their speed limit, or somebody breaking into their home, then they cry foul. What is that? Change. It's just shifting. It is moral relativity. Okay? So what you have to try to help young people is to walk them through those scriptural sets, those scriptural stops, and say, If you could just know these six stops, it will give you something for the Holy Spirit to work with in our practice. In in the next uh, session that we're going to do, I forget the times, but check your schedule, whenever that's happening. I'm going to get into the topic, the devil stole sex. And I'm going to talk about practice more. But I want to, before we, in about a couple of minutes, we're done at 20, right? So I want to do some Q&A. Yep. So I'm going to do some Q&A in five minutes. Let me finish this practice area. Um, I will go way heavier into how do we involve LG+. We're done at 20. Got it. So, okay, thank you. Uh, I forgot where I was, which is pretty normal when you have ADHD. And I'm not joking. If you could see what's going on in this mind right now, it's really scary. But, like, what's for lunch? And I got to drive all the way tonight to some, anyway. And what a great day. Yes. So to close out this practical part, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about, thank you so much for knowing where I'm going. I'm going to talk about, listen, your kids who have ADHD, it'll be okay. Okay, it'll be okay. They can, they can handle it. Um, yeah. Um, I did not take, I don't take focus factor, which I I'd always do, but when I'm speaking, I don't because it slows me down too much. So I do want to cover in the next session the practical things like what do we do with LG+. Plus? in our youth group. What do we do? How do we handle that? So I'm going to really get into that stuff, okay? So hang on to that until the next session. 
And how does that work itself out, right? How does that work itself out? I mean, we allow people who gossip to be on the worship team. Okay, so anyway, what we're, so what we're going to do is cover all of that later. Just a little drop that. Can I just go? <laughs> but anyway, um, let, me, let me close out with this thought right here. Um, sorry, there we go. Boom. If you hear claims about shame, trauma, and submission... That is not the purity culture. Okay? That has nothing to do with a purity culture from its, from its purest definition. Those of us who did youth ministry 35 to 40 years ago cl- began claiming purity. Now, we didn't, ta- we didn't tag it with culture that's what cancel culture has come up with. And I know I have a lot of people who disagree with me on this, but listen, not everything that we did back in the day was perfect. But I'll tell you this. We didn't preach shame. My crowd didn't preach. Sh- I didn't preach, and the people that I knew at this time did not preach shame. We did not preach trauma. We did not preach submission. We preached grace and truth. And sometimes when you preach, as Paul said, grace and truth, conviction comes. And where that goes from there is up to you, not me. And and I'm telling you, the people who heard it from this guy saw it through tears. And I know others misuse this. There are some in this room who say purity culture damaged you because here's the standard and you couldn't reach it. So practically, what do we do? Do we lower our standard or do we raise our grace? I prefer to raise the grace, not lower the standard. Understand that? So in our dealing with young people, practically, this is what it looks like. Cancel culture at its best is making extreme general statements to cancel the scriptures. And if we, hear me, if we don't enter the argument, and if we don't have something to say in the face of cancel culture, we lose another step. I'm tired of it too. Uh... Those that are closest to me know that I am, uh, I have a plan of backing out of social media completely. It, uh, I've, I've started it. I've already contacted many close friends on how to do this. I'm tired of it, and I think it's, I think it's really bad. And the Lord spoke to me uh, several months ago at the beginning of this year and said, I want you to finish the way you started ministry. And I was like, yeah, I'm all into that. I mean, I'm trying to do that, trying to be the same person. And the Lord said, no, 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 no. I want you to finish the way you started in ministry. I want you to go all the way back. I want you to get rid of your social media. I want you to get rid of everything and be all in for the people that you're face-to-face with. I'm like, but God, I have something to say. And he said, then say it. Right? He plays chess. We play checkers. Right? I'm like, but I can't say it like, and he's like, well, you're not saying it well anyway, because you only get 143, whatever, right? <laughs> it's divisive, it's whatever, right? And, and my friends are like, no, you got to stay there, you got to claim that, we love your stuff, and I'm like, good, invite me in and you can hear my stuff. <laughs> anyway, that was, that was selfish, but I think that's why the Lord has really convicted me to write. Because of how important Psalm 78 is to pass off the faith of one generation to the next. And I'm not going to do that on Twitter. I'm not going to do that on TikTok or Instagratify or. But I can do it here. The practice, what does that look like in standing up for the scriptures? When a student comes to you and says, I think I'm gay, 
can we just go there? Multiple times, right? Multiple times. This happens every week where I go. And I'm at a camp last summer. Uh, there were two camps last summer. <laughs> weren't many, but. And this student walks up and looks at me and says, I think I'm gay and puts his head down. And the altars are packed with students on this last night of camp. And I just simply said to him, excuse me, would you like to talk? And he kind of looked at me and said, I think I'm gay. And he put his head down again and he couldn't look at me and finish the sentence. I said, young man, there are a lot of kids here at the altar that need to talk. If you want to talk, look me in the eye and tell me what you want to talk about. And he lifted his head and he stared at me and said, I think I'm gay. And I looked at him and I said, no, you're not. Multiple times I've done this. It is always my first response. Now you have to unpack that, right? Because that's a shock. And he looked at me with his eyes bubbling up in that moment with tears. And he said, how do you know? My mom tells me I am and my dad tells me I am and my uncle tells me I am because I don't play baseball like he does. And all my friends at school tell me I'm gay. What makes you think I'm not gay, right? He's defending what everybody else said. I said, because you just told me what everybody else said about you, not what God said about you. And just, it just broke. That's how you deal with this practically. And in the next couple of minutes, literally just a couple of minutes, maybe less, God created you. There's no middle ground, right? I, I would go, I went over the scriptures that we, I, I had been studying these, so it's just right, it's right there. And I said, what matters most is what God thinks about you and what you think about you, not what all of these other people think about you. And in just literally in minutes, this countenance changed, and, he's, and we prayed together, and he went off and prayed with his youth, and he came back in the morning uh, as I'm, I'm out in the, uh, where all the vans and buses are pulling away, we're high-fiving kids as they leave camp, and, and this, this van stops, and he runs out the double side doors, right, and runs up to me, and, and, and he squeezes me, and he hands me a letter that I still have to this day. And he said, thank you, I'm not gay. I know I'm not. Pray for me as I have faced all these people, right? This is why we do this. Sometimes it just takes a leader saying, no, you're not. The world says you are, but the script, culture, but the script, your parents, uncle, whoever, but God says, right? So the practice of this, man, can, okay, I have, all right, let's break this down maybe a little bit. How can I help you with maybe this content? Let's stay on to this because I know we have another session. Um, yeah, we're going to run a mic so we can get these recorded. Perfect. Some clarity maybe on this stuff or, um, you know, direction maybe outside of the, the, the content here. Maybe you're not sure what I said or whatever, right? Let's do that. Any questions at all? I, mean, I think we have about 10 minutes, right? Ish. Thank you. Hey, um, so thank you very much for, for sharing, uh, yeah. Pastor Jeff. Uh, what, what I see and what I hear you kind of saying is that the culture that the New Testament, a lot of what Paul wrote, the Greek and Roman culture, the sexual ethic was not a great sexual ethic. And we're moving slowly as a culture, I feel, towards a sexual ethic that is very similar. So that kind of gives me hope in knowing that the church was able to uh, be present and be a light in a community that was dark. And in your experience as being a youth minister, longer than myself has been alive, 
right? Where do you see the church moving in positioning itself in regards to that sexual ethic in yeah. five years? Poorly. I think we're doing a poor job. I think we have done a really bad job uh, coming up to um, where we're at now. I do feel like we are trying, but my fear is that we move into so much grace that we forget truth, that we're so afraid of truth today. And I'm really concerned about that, especially in youth ministry. I think we, you have to, as Paul said, use both grace and truth. The two are king and queen. You know how people say, like, you know, king, content is king, or context is king. They have these arguments. I think they both are a great marriage. I don't think you can do with, without one and the other. So how do I see it? Unfortunately, we've done a really bad job of the scarlet letter. Unfortunately, we've done a really poor job of theology. Like most of us wouldn't know how to defend, you know, most of this topic. It, it's just to be frank and honest. And uh, I realize I'm saying that coming from a standpoint of having just spent two years doing this. And really, it's a life mission for me because of the situation I'm in. I was born in San Francisco, and I live in Minneapolis. <laughs> two highly popular, uh, you know, uh, metropolitan gay, gay stops. So, but, but I, I have a ministry. I meet regularly with LG Plus, and they know where I stand, but they love it. They, they love it. And there is a entrance into the church of LG Plus. It's coming. So how we handle that, I'm going to talk about that a little bit in the next session. How we handle that is critical to the future of the church responding to it. That we don't, that we, you know, that we embrace the person, okay, but not the popular um, feeling and emotion that comes with that. You know, we have to be able to say, listen, this is still the church. Listen, I love the scripture where it says Jesus was cozy with the crooks. But in that same phrase where he sat with sinners, one version says he was cozy with the crooks. It says, and he declared the truth to them. Man, I feel like youth ministry has lost our theological ethic, and we just want to be friends with them. What freaking good does that do? you got to preach the gospel. Or we're just going to, yeah, continue on. I think where we've been going. <laughs> Does that help? So I think poor, but we're, we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, I like what you were saying, telling the story about this kid. Um, you know, he's saying he thinks he's gay. You say, no, you're not. But I'm wondering what, what do you feel is like a practical um, response to people who, like, Good. it sounds like this kid other people were saying that about him, but someone who personally says, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction, yes. what's the practical, how do you respond to that? So good. The hard part about what I do, honestly, man, my friends who know me really well, the hard part about what I do is I don't get to see the fruit of my ministry unless somebody takes the time to send me a DM. I don't, I don't get to see the response of what this kid's going to, I don't even know if, if, he's, if he's changed. So it's a great story, isn't it? Unless a leader connects with me. So practically, if I were a youth leader, I would be making sure that I had a support system around this person, that I was, that I was clear on my theology of sex, and that it, that it was in four or five of my series every year, not just in February, <laughs> right? That this became a uh, cycle of, theolo of, a, of a theological framework. So uh, support system, you know, the right friends, new friends, new mentality, uh, the, the, the teaching. I think you should also do everything you can to build the relationship with the parents, all of the parents. We met when I was a youth pastor in the fall and the spring. We met twice a year with our parents because I couldn't do, uh, there's no way I could do youth ministry without parents. Not a chance. 
And I would let them know, listen, I'm doing my best, but you have, have them a little more than I do. Not quite as much as the school does, but a little more. <laughs> anyway, so parent stuff. Uh, bring in a professional counselor. Bring in a professional counselor who could deal with this kind of stuff with your leaders. Okay? I am doing now, I feel like the sex therapist. Guys, <laughs> I'm doing now like multiple, multiple. I just got another call yesterday and then the day before to do these, and, you know, and it's all coming out of just, I think, this writing and the grace that God has on me now, which I'm being very careful with because this is such a divisive, explosive topic. So I would get a professional in to sit with your people. I just sat with the district superintendent and his whole team in Florida the last two days. And then the day before that with all the youth pastors in, in, that, in that district and did this for a day and a half. So get, get somebody to come in and speak to this uh, so that you know language and you know how to, I'm going to cover some of that stuff in the next session, session, so you know how to even address the topics when they do come up. That, the whole gay hate debate that the church hates gays started on a lie. And the media and Satan have been rubbing their hands together ever since. And it was an absolute falsification. But we believe the lie like we always do. Kind of like the Abagnale effect. Catch me if you can. Yeah, I'll, I'll hit that in the next session, too. Um, two minutes. Can we do one more? One more. Two minutes. Yeah. Um, I have a student who actually approached me, like, this past week about the issue. Um, and she strongly believes that she's prayed to God and that God has told her that being gay is okay, and she's really dead set on feeling that God has told her that sure. this is fine. Like, how do you approach that if she feels that she's had this conversation with God and God's confirmed that it's okay? I guess, like, how do you break yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to take your word for a minute here, okay? And uh, let, me make, let me make this statement. Same-sex attraction is not sin. Same-sex action is sin. So, uh, honestly, I'm okay if she wants to be gay. A celibate gay Christian. And I know that's dangerous too. I've had uh, speaking engagements already closed because I make that statement. I've had districts who won't allow me to come in now. I know that. That's real. But it's just real. Okay, I walk into a store. She walks into a store. She's got 10 bucks. 10 bucks, that's it. And she's with her friends, and she's getting gum and a drink. And realizes, we're gone for the day. I lost my charger. I didn't bring my charger with me. So she's like, I got to steal. I got to get a charger. She goes over to the charger, right, takes it, puts it in her purse or whatever, gets up to the counter, pays for the gum and the drink, and realizes this is crazy. Okay, drops the charger in the gum rack and walks out. Did she sin? I don't think so. Because temptation is not sin. So maybe this struggle that she's having is born out of circumstance. What they say, born versus made, that whole argument. I'm okay with born or made. I don't care. Just get born again if you're born that way. I don't have any problem. I don't have the problem. Many people have a problem with being born that way. I was born that way. Yeah, and sin, my mother conceived me, and I was born as a liar maybe because my parents were really good at that. Or I had addictions and what I call leans or borns, right, because of my heritage or whatever. Then just that's why we get born again. <laughs> Most of it is made, I think. Most of it is culture. So what I would just share with her is, listen, uh, are these, is this feeling or a faith? I just need to know this. Could you take, God told you, can you take me to that moment? Let him clarify this. Help kids hear from God. Can you tell me what he shared with you? Can you just give me that? Was it you saying that you're okay with God and he's okay with you? That he loves you? Or that he is agreeing with your lifestyle that you've chosen? So is she chosen the lifestyle? Yeah. So it's mostly thought, process, and feeling? Yeah. Man, I'd be so okay with that. 
I would love to talk to, I love to talk to students who are like that. Because then you can get down to why do you feel that way? Ethic, emotion, feeling, faith, popularity, principle. Right? So I would just say, keep working. Have her explain. You got to let students, don't take students at God told me. Say, okay, what did, he, what did he say? Did he tell you he loves you or that it's okay? And then help him. Well, I'm not sure. Okay, so help me out here, right? This is why we have a job. We pastor kids, right? Does that make sense? So I would get back into conversation with her and try to get a little bit more out of her so she knows where she stands. And then if you have to, just say, listen, this is what God said. Here's six stops. That doesn't make sense to me that he would okay something he said is not okay. Can you help me with that? That's how I approach teenagers. Oh, well, I mean, I don't know. I just thought, I just thought, yeah, no, that makes sense. Cool. Okay. <laughs> That's how my conversations go with teenagers. It's the millennials and the Xers who have, you know, <laughs> arguments. Sometimes of ignorance, but still arguments. Okay, I think we're done. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeff. Can we give it up for Jeff?